Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This is the Asian Madness Podcast, a podcast where we discuss all things true crime, morbid, mysterious, and odd from the Asian continent. I am your host, Jessica. Hello and welcome back to the Asian Madness Podcast. Once again, I hope you guys are doing well and taking care of yourselves. So my kid nephew recently helped me set up an account on YouTube because he likes making and editing videos himself. It was very sweet of him and if you guys have the time and are willing to help me out, please go to YouTube and search the Asian Madness Podcast and subscribe to the channel. I really don't know how all this is going to work, but it's definitely something worth trying. Apparently a lot of people are more into YouTube rather than simple audio apps, so we shall see. If you have subscribed, thank you. Now on to today's case. This is a case that was suggested by a listener, Tom, from Facebook. He was also the one to suggest a Toi Mutsuo case, episode 53, and the suicide manual case. I'm starting to see a case suggestion pattern here, Tom. Anyway, this case is quite intriguing and strange. Some say it's unsolved, some say it's solved, so you can listen to this episode and maybe decide for yourself. It's a mysterious case involving a bank robber, people getting poisoned, and a man who was imprisoned without concrete evidence. Was he the one behind it, though? This is the case of the Teigin slash Teikoku bank robbery and poisoning. Let's begin. The day was January 26, 1948. Time at around 3 p.m. Location, Toshima, Tokyo, Japan. More specifically, it was the Imperial Bank, also known as the Teikoku or Teigin Bank in Japanese. The bank was pretty much closed for the day and all the tellers and clerks were going through their documents and files, hoping they could finish up as soon as they could so they could head on home. Suddenly, in walks a man from the side doors wearing a suit with a pin on his sleeve. The pin basically indicates his status at work, and this pin specifically stated that he was in the Epidemic Prevention Unit, which is assumed to be a government branch. The clerks and tellers were about to tell him that he can't be in here and that the bank was closed when he told them that he was sent by U.S. occupation authorities from the Tokyo Epidemiology Division and that he wished to speak to their manager. Mr. Yoshida, the manager, walked over, and the mysterious man handed him his card. What exactly was the issue, you ask? According to the mysterious man, there had been an outbreak of dysentery in nearby locations, 
and that someone with dysentery had entered this bank recently. He had orders from his unit to come disinfect the area. Before I go on, you might have noticed that the year is 1948, so World War II literally just ended a few years ago. Japan had their own government at the time, but the U.S. had a very strong presence in Japan as well, possibly even stronger and more influential than the Japanese government. Life conditions were harsh after the war, food and daily items were rationed to an extreme at times, and the last thing people needed was some disease outbreak. This is just to explain why the clerks and tellers were so trusting with everything the mysterious man had to say, since he claimed he was sent by U.S. authorities to investigate dysentery. The mysterious man stated his business and swiftly took out two large bottles. He explained that these two bottles contain medicine, and that they have to be taken exactly one minute apart. There were 16 people at the bank that day, excluding the mysterious man. 15 bank employees and a child of one of the employees. He explained that to take the first medicine, you have to be careful not to let it touch your teeth, as it had certain chemicals that could cause damage or pain to your teeth. He took the first medicine bottle and demonstrated by pushing his tongue down along his lower teeth, pretty much covering it. He gulped it down and asked everyone else to do exactly what he did. After everyone took the first medicine, they all began to feel a burning sensation in their throats. Well, the man said it was medicine, and thus it was necessary. Wouldn't want to catch dysentery now, would we? They all waited a minute or so and took the next liquid, but they still felt really sick. The mysterious man told them they could go drink water or rinse their mouth out if they wished to. The burning sensation began to get worse for the 16 people, and eventually, one by one, they began to collapse on the floor. Once the mysterious man saw what was happening, he casually walked to the safe, took 160,000 yen, approximately 2,000 USD, and a check with a value of 17,450 yen. He also took the business card he had initially given to the branch manager. Then, he just left. One employee by the surname Muramoto collapsed but was still conscious. She used every bit of strength she had left in her and crawled out of the bank. A student came across the bank employee and immediately went and notified the police. What the hell kind of medicine was it? And most importantly, who the hell was that mysterious man? The police arrived and were clearly perplexed and shocked. Out of the 16 people present, 11 died on the spot and another one died en route to the hospital. The police took whatever evidence they could find with them, hoping that something could help them figure out who and what happened. A ton of coffins were gathered at the bank so they could take the bodies out without alarming the onlookers. The bodies were then taken for autopsies so they could hopefully find out what exactly caused these people to suddenly collapse and die. According to the autopsy results, the first liquid they drank was very likely a type of cyanide, or specifically, nitrile cyanide. The second liquid they drank was harmless, most likely water. This seems a bit unnecessary, right? If the mysterious man's motive was to incapacitate his victims and rob the bank, why go through the trouble of making them drink this second medicine? Police believe that this kind of cyanide used 
required a bit of time to react. So by telling people to wait a whole minute before taking the other liquid sort of bought him some time. I don't know. It sounds possible, but he could have easily made up some other bullshit and stalled them for another minute or two. The police were unable to establish who the mysterious man claimed to be, though, because he took his business card with him when he left. And even if he had left it, it very well could have been fake. They could only ask those who survived the poisoning and come up with a sketch of what the man looked like. As for the stolen check, it was cashed out approximately two days after the poisoning. So while this bank poisoning slash bank robbery was extremely horrible, it actually was not the first of its kind, which actually makes it even more insane. Two extremely similar incidents occurred only days and months before this tagging bank murder slash robbery. You would think police would be more cautious and notify everyone of such suspicious activities, but I guess times were different. The first incident took place the previous year, on October 14, 1947. Everything was pretty much exactly the same. A mysterious man walks into Yasuda Bank right after closing time, claiming to be from the local government and is here to investigate a dysentery outbreak. He also handed out a business card, but in this instance, he left it with the bank. The name on the business card was of a man named Matsui Shigeru from the Ministry of Health and Warfare. While this business card was legit and this person really did exist, Matsui had a solid alibi, and they concluded that someone must have come across his business card and gave it to the bank, pretending to be him. The employees in the bank that day were also given this so-called medicine, but unlike the incident from Tegin Bank, it was all harmless and no one got sick or died. The second incident occurred on January 19th, only nine days before the Tegin Bank incident. Again, a well-dressed middle-aged man showed up at Mitsubishi Bank right after closing, talked about a dysentery outbreak, and provided his business card. This time, though, the card belonged to a man named Yamaguchi Jiro, who was also from the Ministry of Health and Warfare. Unlike the first incident, though, this Yamaguchi Jiro guy did not exist. This card and the identity were all complete fakes. Of course, the bank employees did not know this at the time, but even then, they were rather suspicious of this government man showing up with random medicine. The mysterious man most likely sensed their hesitation and suspicion, so he ended up just spraying the bank floor with some sort of liquid and then left. Such a weird encounter it must have been. Like, you feel like you're being scammed, so you express doubt, and then the scammer is worried about getting exposed, so they kind of just leave. As you can see, these three incidents were all pretty much the same, except the outcome. Were all these quote-unquote dysentery inspections done by the same man? What for? He didn't even take all the money in the vault. Was he using the first two incidents as practice for a bank heist? If it's the same man in all three incidents... What made him decide to finally kill? The first two incidents were definitely weird, but if you consider it, no one was really harmed in the process, right? At the very least, it may have just been some harmless prank, and at worst, the man maybe was planning something, but somehow it never worked out for him. So, whatever. 
I guess that may be a reason why the police weren't really on top of these cases. But who knows, maybe they were really on it, but just got nowhere. But for sure, the investigation into this mysterious man didn't ramp up till 12 people died. So a special task force was formed to investigate this case, and it was clear now that the three incidents were most likely connected, and possibly committed by the same man. So what evidence did they have to go on? We have eyewitness testimonies from those that worked at the bank, and they did give a description of the man. But then again, it could be faulty and eyewitness testimonies could be inaccurate. Then we have to check that the mysterious man cashed out. They looked into it but found that the name and address given were all non-existent. All they had was his handwriting, which could maybe be useful one day when they have a person of interest. Lastly, the police looked into the whole business card deal. So in the first incident, the business card used was legit, like it actually belonged to a real person. The second business card was fake. The third one they cannot be sure because the man took the card with him when he left the bank. So now all they had to go on was the first business card. Like I mentioned, Matsui Shigeru, owner of the first business card, had an airtight alibi and was nowhere near Yasuda Bank on October 14, 1947. It was assumed that someone who had received one of his business cards used it to fake their identity. So the police began to trace his business cards. According to Matsui, that version of business cards was printed in 1947, and he only had 100 printed. Out of the 100 business cards, he had given out 92, so logically they began to trace all those he came in contact with. The business card retracing game took about six months complete, and they managed to recover 62. The rest were either lost or unaccounted for. Matsui had a very good habit of documenting his life, as in keeping a work agenda, so it was not really difficult to find out who he met with, even if they were unable to reproduce the business card they received from Matsui. The police went through all the possible suspects they found, and eventually one person stood out a man by the name of Hirasawa Sadamichi. And who was this guy exactly? Hirasawa Sadamichi was born on February 18, 1892, in Tokyo. When he was around 20 years old, he joined the Japan Watercolor Research Institute because he was into art and painting. His first work of art was put on exhibition in the year 1919, and in 1921, he was awarded an Academy Prize for his work. Okay, Long story short, he was an artist. Unfortunately, though, despite being recognized, life was still harsh for him. He had trouble making ends meet and was constantly borrowing money from family and friends. Anyway, out of all 92 people who supposedly received a business card from Matsui, why did Hirasawa stand out? When the police tracked down Hirasawa, he told them that he had met Matsui but he did not have that card anymore. Just a few days or weeks ago, his wallet had been stolen, and in it was the business card. The police checked the story out, and it all did check out, as he had filed a report with the police. Obviously, that's not enough to declare him a murderer, but remember the police had questioned the witnesses and had come up with a composite sketch? He kind of looked like the man in the sketch. The police even asked some eyewitnesses if Saramichi was the man, 
and many of them stated that he looked very similar to the mysterious man, but they could not be sure of it either. That made him extra suspicious, yes, but is it enough to arrest him? No, but it was definitely enough to look further into it. His alibi for January 26 of 1948 was very flimsy. He said he was out on a stroll at around 3 p.m., and sucks for him, he was alone, so no one could verify his statement. The police looked further into Sadamichi's history and discovered that he not only had a history of being dishonest and had previous charges involving bank fraud, he was also diagnosed with Korsakoff syndrome, a chronic memory disorder. Things just were not looking very good for him. The last bit of information uncovered really ended up sealing his fate, though. Three days after the poisoning, approximately 134,000 yen was deposited into Hirasawa and his relatives' bank accounts. They asked him where he got the money from, since they knew he was a struggling artist. But Hirasawa kept changing his answer from, Oh, I sold a few pieces of art, to, Oh, I borrowed money from somebody else. Combine everything from above, you get a man who looks kinda guilty, but still, there wasn't any concrete proof. Handwriting experts also had different opinions on whether his handwriting matched that on the check that was cashed. Sadamichi knew what the deal was, and he continued to claim his innocence. Either way, he was arrested on August 21st, 1948, for the murder of 12 people. During interrogation, Sadamichi surprisingly confessed that he was, in fact, the mysterious man. Apparently, it was rumored that a lot of physical persuasion was used during the interrogation, and as we know, that is a pretty good way to get people to start talking. Torturing prisoners and whatnot was legal back then, so it didn't really matter how they did it. As long as they got a confession out of Sadamichi, their work was done. And once he opened his mouth and made a confession, police were like, Oh, okay, we knew it. We got the guy. It didn't matter that soon after confessing, Sadamichi immediately tried to take it back. Sadamichi was put on trial in 1950, and his defense lawyer tried to use insanity defense also stating that Sadamichi was diagnosed with Korsakov syndrome. Therefore, whatever his confession was, it couldn't and shouldn't be used during the trial. Everybody else disagreed, though. Maybe because a confession is a confession. Why would anyone possibly confess if they're not guilty? As someone who listens to tons of true crime podcasts, the more stories you hear, the more you come to understand that false confessions are really a thing for whatever reason. The evidence that prosecutors had for Sadamichi's guilt, though, was considered pretty circumstantial. But you top that off with a confession? Perfect ending. So in 1950, Sadamichi was found guilty and sentenced to death. Would you have convicted him? Despite his lawyer's multiple pleas for a retrial, his death sentence was upheld by the Supreme Court in 1955. I guess that is Sadamichi's life. Now, it kind of seems like an open and shut case in a sense. A guy went around trying to rob a bank, but instead of using traditional methods like a gun or a knife, he opted for poison and a fake identity. So interestingly, the circumstantial evidence the court had against him could also be used to explain why he probably wasn't the perpetrator. Let's see. First of all, 
a ton of people should know what he looks like, right? He supposedly went into three different banks. Two of them, nothing happened, so everyone's still alive and well. In total, there were about 40 eyewitnesses still alive, but somehow, most of them were unable to actually pinpoint him as the mysterious man. I understand that eyewitness testimonies are deemed unreliable, but you would think that more people would be able to recognize him, right? Also, everything happened within a year, between October of 1947 and August of 1948, when Sadamichi was actually arrested. It's not like it's been years since they saw the man, so I would assume they would at least remember what he looked like. Next, remember there was a check and some cash taken from the third bank? And somehow, Sadamichi had deposited a similar amount into his bank account a few days later? According to a Japanese author named Matsumoto Seicho, he strongly believed that Sadamichi's mysterious money actually came from selling pornographic paintings, which would probably have been a bit embarrassing and maybe even a bit taboo. Is that why he never explained the money's origin? But if that were true, wouldn't a bit of embarrassment be worth it if it meant not getting the death penalty? Now, let's discuss the poison used at the third bank. It was for sure some form of cyanide, and initially, investigators concluded that it was potassium cyanide. But according to some experts, the kind of effect it had on the victims were not entirely consistent with those of potassium cyanide. They later concluded that the first dose of quote-unquote medicine was actually acetone cyanohydrin, which is a type of military-grade poison that could have only been produced in a lab. Here's a question nobody was able to answer. If Sadamichi was the killer, how could he have obtained something this classified? Nothing in his history indicated he had any knowledge or was in contact with this type of poison. The author I mentioned earlier, Matsumoto Seicho, also believes that Sadamichi could not have had access to something in the military, so his logical conclusion was that the bank and poison crimes were committed by someone with ties to the military, possibly someone from Unit 731. So, side note time, what is Unit 731? Unit 731, also known as Manshu Detachment 731, was a, quote, covert biological and chemical warfare research and development unit of the Imperial Japanese Army that undertook lethal human experimentation during the Second Sino-Japanese War of World War I, end quote. The Second Sino-Japanese War was basically when the Japanese invaded China during World War II between 1937 and 1945, and while they were there, they did a ton of horrible human experiments. They were never able to count the actual death toll, but approximately 300 to 400,000 people lost their lives. This Unit 731 is notorious and just as bad as what the Nazis did in concentration camps. So that alone could probably be an episode in the future. So this Unit 731 was rumored to have ties to the bank incidents. But again, there was no concrete proof of this either. Several people who were involved in Unit 731 were free to live a normal life after World War II, as in not being charged in any war crimes, no trial, just normal life. It was possible that maybe someone who used to be in that unit 
was then later brought on to work on more classified projects in the American military units in Japan. But why they would want to use this poison to target banks and only get a tiny amount of money and killing 12 people is a huge mystery to me. Despite receiving the death penalty though, Sadamichi's death order was never signed off and thus never carried out. Sure, he was in prison for a notorious crime, but so many people doubted his guilt and this is why the death order was never signed off. This is something very interesting when it comes to death penalties. I know lots of people are against the death penalty, period, but there are some out there that feel conflicted. Some feel like unless there is zero doubt to someone's guilt, as in you have real physical evidence and that kind of stuff, the death penalty should not be carried out. What are your thoughts? Although he was never found innocent, people had trouble finding him guilty too. But in prison he stayed until his death in the year 1987 due to illness. During his time in prison, he continued to paint and even eventually wrote his autobiography called My Will, The Teikoku Bank Case. At this point, he probably knew the case inside and out. Before his death though, Amnesty International had asked Japanese government to let him go, but before any of that could happen, he died at the age of 95. Japanese people have really long lifespans, and I wonder if he could have lived a few more years if he had gotten out and received proper treatment. This is how Sadamichi became the man with the longest death sentence in Japan. Lots of people were pretty adamant about Sadamichi's innocence. Groups of people banded together to fight the sentencing. And even after his death, they would try to preserve his legacy. Most people who supported Sadamichi's innocence believe that these bank incidents had something to do with Unit 731, or at least the people that used to work there. If it was the American military doing experiments on civilians, there would be no way to find out unless someone came forward with the information. A group of investigators stated that the real culprit is an ex-military person, and that there was no way someone like Sadamichi would possess such knowledge on poison. They even ran a background check on everyone who left Unit 731 after the war, including their whereabouts, their alibis, their history, and one man stood out, but it was never confirmed if that was the real mysterious man. If it was, I bet he had a lot of people help cover up these incidents. A group of lawyers hired a team of professionals to help re-examine the case, hoping to find new leads and hopefully to clear Sadamichi's name. Leading this group was a man named Hirasawa Takehiko, the adopted son of Sadamichi. Hirasawa spent years looking for Sadamichi's lost art and trying to get a retrial, but this case was declared officially closed not long after Hirasawa's death in 2013. He was only in his 50s, but it was presumed that the stress of the case and his own mother's passing really took a toll on his health. This case was of course turned into a movie and was an inspiration to various other things. A movie called Teigin Jiken, Shikeshu, was released in 1964 about this crime. An American author who lived in Japan for years also wrote a book based off of this case. This case was also briefly mentioned in the 1964 James Bond novel, You Only Live Twice. And since I have never read it, Wikipedia tells me that it was, quote, embellished and exaggerated, end quote. 
I believe Wikipedia, though. So there you have it. The somewhat solved, somewhat unsolved case of the Taeguin Bank poisoning. Do you think Saramichi is the killer? Or do you think there's some military biolab experiment thing going on behind the scenes? I personally think that Saramichi has some sketchy sides and whatnot, but definitely not enough to prove that he was the perpetrator. Those were different times, though. The court worked differently, and the police certainly were different. If he was never physically tortured to confess, I wonder if he would have said anything else. He claimed to be innocent during the entire 32 years he was locked up, so it really makes me wonder. Was he just a scapegoat? This is a very intriguing case for sure, and it makes me a bit sad to think that we may never really get to the bottom of this. It's an old case, and probably not much new information is left. Well, thank you all though for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed listening to this. Please take care, and till next time. And before I go, I would like to thank Harpy Queen for becoming my new Patreon member. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Asian Madness Podcast. If you enjoyed my content, please rate and review me on iTunes. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or email me at asianmadnesspod at gmail.com. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.